How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Three of you are great. So that's good. Maybe that'll fill up everybody else before the end. Um, so I was talking to my friend Joe uh, the other day, and, and he's always carried around this comb with him. Like one of those, if you remember way back in the day, and this is going to age me somewhat, when you'd have picture day at school, like they'd hand you a comb. Uh, and for some of us, we'd never used one before in our lives, but they still handed you one. And so in his younger days, it, was, it made sense. He had a lot of hair. Uh, but as of late, let's just say he hasn't needed the comb very much, but he still carries it around. And, and so finally, I asked him, you know, why, why do you carry this comb? Like, why do you always have it out? Why do you always have it? And he said, well, it's a great comb. I just can't part with it. <laughs> there we go. That's what happens when football season ends, guys. We, we, sorry. We are finishing the Firm Foundations series, and it's been such a cool series to start the year with because it's about the foundations of our faith. It's about how we can grow stronger, how we can grow better, how we can grow more like him. And all of the things that go into that, all of the things that go into our faith, all of the important things that make us who we are, that help us to become Christians, that help us to become the church. And so as we wrap this up, I want to go to the most important sermon uh, ever that, that anyone gave, but among Jesus, you know, all of his were amazing, but the Sermon on the Mount, and so I want to hit the Beatitudes. But as I go through these, and I'm sure all of you have heard the Beatitudes at one time or another, I want you to think about how they apply to the foundations of our faith. And think about what it was like for the people there to hear the Messiah give this message versus what maybe they were expecting, versus maybe what some of us would have given. And so I'm going to start with Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Uh, one day, as he saw the crowd gathering, Jesus went up to the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. So before I even get into the Beatitudes themselves, this is where Jesus sets the example for us. You see, we are entering into the Easter season. We're going to talk a lot uh, about the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross, how he died for us, how his blood was poured out for us, how he defeated death for us, and that amazing sacrifice, which is obviously foundational, not just to our faith, but to our very lives. But that wasn't the only sacrifice he made. Each and every day of his life on earth, he sacrificed in order to teach us, to give us healing, to, to love us, to do everything. And so right here, as you read through, he's already done so much, even in the first few chapters of Matthew. And he sits and teaches. He sees a lot of people coming. And maybe where some of us would see a lot of people coming and kind of go the other way. He sees them, and he goes up to sit down to teach his disciples and to teach them because he loves it so much. He loves us so much. And imagine being there and hearing the message preached from the source, from the word, from, from God, and just how powerful that must have felt. And, and he's going on instructing his disciples. He's telling them what it looks like to follow him. He's bringing in other people. He's giving them everything. And the phrase they use for begin to teach them, and in some translations, it's he opened his mouth to teach. It's used in Greek culture at the time, the Greek translation, uh, is to show how weighty something is, how important something is. It's not just, oh, he was going to talk about something. It's, this is going to be major. This is going to be life-changing. This is going to be powerful. And so everyone was on the edge of their seat listening. 
And it's considered, the Sermon on the Mount, considered to be one of the, the most beautiful, powerful uh, sermons ever, one of the most beautiful, powerful anythings ever. And it's so amazing as you read through it. Again, how different it is from what he could have said. How different it is from what some Christians would say. How different it is from what the Pharisees would have said. How different it is from what the world would say. Because he loved everyone he was talking to. He loved everyone so much that he not only gave his life on the cross, he gave his life each and every step of the way to teach. And so we're going to talk about those lessons. But this is his first teachings. And even though there's the rumors of the Messiah going around, He doesn't address that. He just addresses, this is what teaching means. This is what it looks like. This is what it is to follow me. And so I have a quote from someone who, again, and I've used him over and over again. Because out of anyone you can think of, any uh, well-known Christian in time, throughout time, I believe no one exhibits what Jesus called us to exhibit more than him. Some are equal to him. But you talk about that quote. The best teacher in the world is somebody who loves what he or she does and loves it in front of you. He exhibited that. Just like Jesus exhibited every single thing he's about to say. And just like Jesus loves teaching, loves us. And it showed, I'm sure, in everything that he said and everything that he did. Just like we should love teaching. Last week, We talked about teaching them to be disciples and just how that's a call. That's the Great Commission. That's something we're supposed to do. But loving what we teach is vital to that. It can't just be words. And it shows when it's more than that. It shows when it's passion. It shows what is important. Loving what we teach is so vital. I have a decent understanding of math. And so I could teach someone algebra. It's not going to be very exciting for any of us, but I could do it. However, if someone were to say, could you instruct me on the Marvel movies? You would see very quickly how different I feel about those than algebra. And I would be able to teach it, and I would be able to go, and it would be exciting for me at least. And it would just be something where you can tell. Or if you ask, hey, do you have a niece? I would be able to go for hours teaching you about her and showing pictures. And some of you know that all you have to do is say a word that starts with the letter B, and I will bring that to Beatrice. And you can see it when we care about something. You can see it when something matters to us. And so this has to matter to us. It can't just be words. It can't just be a checklist. It can't just be what we say we are. It has to be who we are. And we all know the call. We all know the call to be disciples. We all know the call to teach. We all know that, but it's more than knowledge. It's more than sharing. It's more than just being there. It's living it. It's showing it. It's loving that we do it. I've said before, and you guys know anxiety and all that stuff that I deal with, If I were to stand up in front of a thousand business people giving a CEO lecture or something, it would not be comfortable for anyone. But up here, where he is with me, it is so different. And so often we worry in situations, what if I don't have all the answers? Well, guess what? You don't. 
But if you have the love for him and you know how to get salvation and you know who he is and what he means to you, that is what teaching is. That is what living is. That is what witnessing is. Often, it's not even our words, but the way that they come out, the way that we say them, the way that the love shows through them. And Jesus exhibits that, as we're about to see, as we know, pure love for us, but also pure passion for what he's saying. He literally is this message, and so he knows that it's right. But more than that, he knows that it's the only way to live, not just the only way to heaven, but that living for him is the only way we'll feel complete, that we'll feel truly loved, that we'll feel like we belong. And so the passion shines through. And so we're going to the Beatitudes with verse 3. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. Uh, God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. I love the Beatitudes. And we probably know them in different translations too. We know the blessed bees and things like that, hashtag blessed, all those things. I'm just curious before I continue. I'm checking the age of you guys. How many people, when you saw that, that title, thought to yourself, pound sign, instead of hashtag? <laughs> be honest, because I still think that. I'm going to be honest, I still think that. Uh, you know, there's the stories of kids who see the old phones, and they see that, and they're like, why is there a hashtag on that old phone? Like, it's, anyway, side. But put yourself in the shoes of the people at hearing this message, the Beatitudes hearing the Sermon on the Mount, hearing Jesus talk, the disciples especially, but anyone sitting there. As I said, even though no one knew he was the Messiah yet, there were rumors about it and there were signs and, you know, people were whispering, like, is this the Messiah? Is this, you know, what's going to happen here? The disciples were, were around him and so it's like, hey, there's something about him. There's something different. And so that, that word was going around the crowd probably. But the words that he spoke, Again, they're not what was expected. The Jewish nation, the Israelites, they believed the Messiah was going to be a conquering hero like David, who was going to come and just destroy Rome and just make a kingdom on earth. And so they were waiting for a call to revolution, which is what happened, but in such a different way than what was expected. Because he showed more than anything else. And, and if you read through this, the whole Beatitudes, the whole Sermon on the Mount, it doesn't really deal with salvation, which obviously is foundational and vital, but it tells how to live for him. It tells how to look like him, how to be like him. And it's his first public message. And so this is what he taught. He taught how to teach. He taught how to live. He taught how, how to be different. He taught ethics. He taught daily living. He taught this is what it looks like to be different from the world, to be upside down from the world, to, to be loving in a world that is hating. And in his last public message, he said, go and teach them. It's not an accident that those are the bookends. 
Because that's what we're supposed to go and teach them. That's what we're supposed to go and show them. He set the table for us all the way through. He sacrificed for us all the way through. And the Beatitudes, they mark character traits that are marks and goals of all Christians. It's not a, you know what, I'm strong with the first and seventh Beatitudes, so I don't really need to worry about the rest of them. It's, this is what we're supposed to look like. This is not a checklist. This is what we're supposed to look like. This is what we're supposed to be. Once we give our lives to him, this should start working in our lives. This is what it looks like to follow him what it looks like to love him, what it looks like to love others. And what's amazing is that there's even an order to them. You see, Jesus didn't do anything by accident. And granted, I look at things sometimes through a literary lens because of being an English major, because it's not good for anything else, so I might as well do that. (laughs) But if you look at them, It's so beautiful and powerful and amazing how they flow from one to the next and how it makes sense and how he's leading people along through the life of Christ, through the life of a disciple, through what it looks like to truly be blessed. And that word, blessed, it doesn't mean happy. It doesn't mean content. Uh, In 1 Timothy 1.11, that same word that they use for blessed is used to describe God. And so in Greek... It's makarios. And I'm sure all of you are going to write that down and keep that Greek word. But makarios. And it means joy within itself that is serene and untouchable. That means it's a joy that isn't happiness, but it's a joy that can't be touched by sadness, by the world. It's a joy knowing that you're following Jesus, knowing that you're loved, knowing that you're never alone, knowing that you have a place to go. Knowing that you belong because he is there, because you belong to him. And then he goes through everything. And he starts with those who are poor, poor in spirit. And it's not about financials. It's about understanding that you need him. That's why it starts. That's why it's the first. Because it puts everything else in perspective. Because before you understand that you need him, before you understand that on your own we can't do it, then none of the rest would matter. But if you, once you understand, once you realize, man, I just, I, I can't do it on my own. Man, I, I just, my holiness is nothing, but his is everything. Then you recognize that need. You recognize that need for completion, that hope for completion, that, that desire for him. And you see it somewhat in financial. Because there are a lot of statistics and a lot of surveys and a lot of studies that show that most often, People in lower tax brackets give more money to charity to those in need than people in higher tax brackets. Even though they don't have it. And why is that? Because they understand what it means to not have it. And so Jesus is like, in order to take this message to the world, you have to understand that the world needs it because you have to understand that you need it. You have to understand that that, that it matters, that it's love, that it's truth, that it's power. And it's first because it's where we have to start. We can't start at the end. We can't start at sanctification. We have to start at recognizing that we need salvation, recognizing that we need him, recognizing that that we're just nothing without him, but that with him we can have everything. And then he goes on to mourn. And that's kind of a weird one that's next. It's like, what do you mean mourn? Like, 
He wants us to be sad. I thought we were going to be blessed. How can you be blessed and mourn? The word for mourn here, and I'm going to hit some Greek today. The word for mourn here is the strongest Greek word possible for mourn. So it's not necessarily about grief. And it's not necessarily about outside things. It's grieving for the world. But not in a, oh, woe is me, this is never going to be fixed way. But in a, I am so sad that things are like this that I want to be a part of fixing it. I am so sad that other people may not make it to heaven that I want to show them every single day that there is a way to go there. There is a way to be better. I want to show them in my morning that there can be a joy beyond happiness. And then it talks about being humble or meek, and I prefer meek. And we have a different idea in our culture because it's very much dog-eat-dog world. I know somebody who truly believes it's dog-eat-dog world. (laughs) And this same person also thought hindsight is 50-50, but that's a side note. But in our world, regardless of your job, sometimes we have to be a little out for ourselves because nobody else is going to be. And so to be meek, to be humble, it's like, how can I do that? What, what does that mean? Well, meek is praus in Greek. You didn't know you were getting a secondary language today. But it means more than what we think. It's humble strength under control. Humble strength under control. We often in our society, in this world, see meekness, see humility as a weakness. Jesus himself is saying, this is strength. To be meek, to be humble, to recognize that you are not the greatest in the world, to recognize that you belong to him. That's strength. And that humble strength under control. That humble strength fills you and shows you and it follows that mourning and it follows that recognition and it goes into hungering and thirsting for justice. It doesn't say hope that justice is served. It doesn't say I really think it'd be cool if there was justice in the world. To hunger and thirst for justice makes it a necessity because you may not know this, but if you were to go without eating or drinking, you're going to die. That seems to be a surprise for some of you. But this says, Jesus says, make it so that if you go without justice, if you edge towards revenge, you edge towards anger, you edge towards hatred, and you move away from justice, you'll also die. We must hunger and thirst for justice. But he does not stop there because, again, it flows. And he goes straight from hungering and thirsting for justice into We must be merciful. So justice and mercy are tied together for all time from the Savior of the world, from the Messiah. It's about justice and mercy. It's not about, I don't like that person, I hope they pay for their crimes. It's not about, I voted for that person, so I'm cool with them messing up. It's about, we must want justice, but also be merciful. We must look to right injustices in a merciful way to show love, to show forgiveness, to show grace, to show what he shows every single day, to hunger for that, to to, to have it be a driving force in our lives. And justice and mercy essentially defines righteousness. 
And he's calling us to do that, to follow that, to be that. And then he goes on because, man, justice can kind of be subjective sometimes. And mercy even can kind of be subjective sometimes. And so he continues to define us. And he says, be pure in heart. Be pure in heart, which means you're not looking for your justice. You're not defining your mercy. It's his. You're showing his justice, his mercy, his grace, his love. And to be pure in heart means straightforward, honest, clear, loving, gentle, real, merciful. Over and over again, he defines this is what it looks like. And then he takes them, takes us step by step through the process of becoming disciples, of becoming more like him, of having a foundational faith. And he says those, uh, they will see God. Those whose hearts are pure will see God. Now that means literally, but it also means while we're on earth in everyone. And this is again not an accident that it came after justice and mercy because when we seek justice with a merciful intent and a meek heart, And when that heart is pure, we see God in everyone. It doesn't mean we think everybody's right. It doesn't mean that we think all truth is truth. It doesn't mean that we think everybody can do what they want. It means that we see God in everyone. We see the fact that he created them. We see the fact that he loves them. We see the fact that he hopes for their salvation. We see the fact that there is a chance for them to do better in everyone. And once you see that, once they become not just a number, not just a different person, not just a political thing, once they become a person, once they become someone in whom you see God, boom, that changes everything. That changes everything. It's no more us versus them. It's, oh, okay, I don't agree with them, but but I see that God loves them, so I want to love them. I want to show them mercy. I want to give them hope. I want to show them that there's a better way. I want to show them that they can do better, that they can follow him. Because I see God in them. I see value in them just as he sees in me. And man, there are days that I don't see any value in myself at all. But I get up because I know that he does. And he calls us to have that mindset with everyone. And then he continues, just when they're probably flipping. Like, what is he saying? He's not saying an eye for an eye. He's not saying that, that we need to take down Rome. He's saying to love everybody. He's saying that we teach people with mercy. What is he talking about? Then he goes into peace. And he doesn't say those who live in peace. He doesn't say those who hope for peace. He says those who work for peace will be blessed. That means it takes effort. That means that it's more than just sitting at home and saying, I hope. I hope that there can be a change in this world. Because we all know that the world is never going to be a peaceful place. It's just not. Not as long as there's people in it. And yet... We can be a force for peace, a force for change that may not change the whole world, but it can change someone's world. 
And it can show someone that there's a better way. And it can show someone that there is more to life than just life. And then the flowing ideas continue and they reach a crescendo. And we think, we think, well, if you work for peace, then you're going to live in peace. And people will be like, oh, that person, they work for peace, and, and they show justice, and they show mercy, and they're meek, and, and that's really cool. I'm going to be their friend. He says, ah, you're going to be persecuted for this. Now, you notice, he doesn't say, to be persecuted for your own ideas is awesome. He says, to be persecuted for following my words is blessed. Not for following my words. Not for following your words. But for following his words. And that's going to happen. Because the more we follow these, the more we live for him, the more our faith builds that foundation, the more we're going to feel persecuted. Because the world does not like things to be different. And people who aren't living for right don't like a spotlight to be shown on them. And when we live for him and we do it in an honest way, a good way, a pure way, it shows other people we can be different. And so some people are going to respond to that with, wow, I can be different. I really want to know more about that. But some people are going to respond to that. They think they're better than me. And he says, God blesses those who are persecuted for doing what is right. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Which isn't, they're going to be so happy in earth. And I've said this a million times. If I could tell you that once we follow him, once we live for him, once we live like him, our lives will be happy and comfortable and everybody will love us. The doors would be open and people would fill up every seat in every church. In some ways, I can say the opposite. But I can say that it will feel different. And it will feel better than the alternative. And it will give us a hope for a better future that we will not have otherwise. And it will give others a hope for a better future because we will show them that. And so I have a quote about the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are no spiritual to-do list to be attempted by eager, rule-keeping disciples. It is a spiritual done list of the qualities God brings to bear in people who follow Jesus, which is to say, this is not a checklist and you cannot fake it. We cannot pretend to thirst for justice. We cannot pretend to be merciful because the truth always comes out. But once we give our lives to him, once we give our hearts to him, this is who we become. It's back to teaching because we have to love these. We have to love him. We have to love other people. And it, we become that the more we get closer to him. This is who we are. It is foundational. The most foundational thing in the entire faith is to be like Jesus. Christian literally means little Christ. It literally means being like Christ. And Jesus poured out a list of this is what it looks like. And so it's who we are. It's not, again, a checklist that you can do. I'll do numbers three and four on Tuesday. And then on Thursday, I'm really going to hit number six. It's 
We have to strive to be like this every day. This is who we should be. This is who we should show to the world. This is what we should show to everyone. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be a disciple. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it looks like. It's not political. It's not money-related. It's not, I want to do this, I want to do that. It's, this is what it means to follow Jesus, to be like him. He is the way and the truth and the life, which means he's the way to heaven, but he's also the way to live. He is the truth that we live, the truth that we speak, the truth that we know, and he is the only life worth living, and he gives us every single answer. It's like having a math book, and in the back, all the answers are there, and some of you guys knew that. Some of you guys didn't know there were questions in the front of the math book. And he gives us those answers and says, go and do it. It's so amazing and so cool. Going to verse 11. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. Again, this is so upside down. Hey, when people make fun of you for being a Christian, when people say, how, why are you going to church on Sunday morning? Or they say, how come you're not living this way? Why aren't you going to do this? Be happy about it. That's so weird. And it's so hard. But it means more than what we think. It doesn't mean just smile and stand there. It means don't become what we are fighting against. One of the things I hit a lot in sermons is politics. And that is not because I don't vote. It's not because I don't care about the country. It is because the thing that breaks my heart the most is when I see Christians become just like the world because of that. And it becomes less about, this is what Jesus has called me to do and called me to be, and more about, this is what my party believes. We've all gotten caught up in it. We have. But he is saying, we have to break that mold. We have to show that there's a better way. I get that it's hard because we live in this world and it does things a certain way, and I get that. But we have to show love. We have to show mercy. We have to show understanding. We have to show him to everyone, regardless of who they vote for. We have to be different. And following his words, following his beatitudes, following the foundation he set before us shows us how to do that. It shows us how to be different than everyone else. And again, care about the things of the world. That's fine, but care about the things of him, the way of him far more, and how we can do that, how we can be helping, how we can live for him more. We must learn to be more like him because it has to be about more than words. It is remarkably easy to write a post or a tweet or a TikTok. I know all of you are on TikTok. And to put hashtag blessed at the end. 
But it has to be more than words. It has to be more than words. So often, as churches, we look around and we point out the reasons people don't come, and there are a lot of them. And I see how uh, kids' sports and team sports, like the, the, the schools don't do us any favors, and jobs don't do us any favors, and I get that. But it's not about attendance. It's about who we serve. It's about living for him. It's about our priorities. It's about showing him to a world that desperately needs to see him. I do a mental health class on Tuesdays. And this last week, I talked about anger. And we often don't think of anger as a mental health issue, but it can be. And one of the things that I talked about is a, a couple justifications people use for anger. Number one is it adds passion to my argument. And number two is it really makes people listen. And those are justifications that all of us have probably used at one time or another. I'm going to save you the trouble of going through the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. Never once does the only Savior in the history of the world the only person to never sin, say, be angry. Show anger. He says, be meek. Show mercy. And it's so hard to do because nobody else follows that. But we are together, with him, together, learning that we can be better. And it, we learn that we can be like Jesus. And I have one more quote. When God wants to sort out the world, as the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount make clear, he doesn't send in the tanks. He sends in the meek, the broken, the justice-hungry, the peacemakers, the pure-hearted, and so on. Jesus doesn't say might makes right. Jesus says right makes might. He could have said literally anything in this message. Because he's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He is the authority. He could have said anything and sparked a revolution. He could have called for an end to the Roman rule. And called his believers in force. And had he done that, the Pharisees would have absolutely followed him. And he could have called for an eye for an eye, and he could have called for anger, and he could have called for hatred of everyone who's not like you. He called for the opposite. In his first message, in his powerful message, in his, his state of the union, so to speak, he spoke of meekness and peace and justice and mercy. He had all the power in the universe. He's God. He could have taken over, easy. He could have stopped Rome. He could have gotten off the cross. He didn't have to go to the cross. He could have said, everyone kneel, and everyone follow me, and people would have had no choice. And yet, that's not love. And as hard as I can't imagine it is, but it is for him, as hard as it must be for him to see people turn away, he loves us so much that he gives us that choice. 
He loves us so much that he wants us to choose him of free will. And that's what he talks about. And he told Peter to put down the sword. To put down the sword. That does not mean don't fight. But it means to fight in the right way. It means to fight with our lives, to fight with our joy, to fight with our faith, to fight with who he is. Just as he did. And if you read through his entire life, everything that he said and did in the Gospels, there is no one in the history of time that would look at him and call him weak. And yet he never punched a single person. He never spoke out in hatred. Everything was about truth and justice and mercy and peace and love and hope. And he showed such tremendous strength. And then he said, guys, my strength is your strength. And he said, we can do it. So let's do it. That's all I got.